Good morning. Good morning. A couple of announcements before we start today. We want to remember Alan Artris and his uh, family in prayer this week. He's quite sick. We went and saw him this week, and I haven't got an update uh, since, I guess, Wednesday. And then I want to encourage you. You know, over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of question in our local community about what goes on in that classroom over there. And there are people that have concerns about what we teach that would never set foot in this class. Now they can set foot through our webcast. Let them know about the webcast. We might get some people dropping in that would never drop in and finally hear for themselves what goes on here. So let people know that we've got this going live. Let's begin class with prayer today. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study again. We ask that your spirit will join us. We ask that your, uh, you, you will en- enlighten our minds, bring us to a unity of love with you. We want to remember Alan, who is uh, f- physically just struggling, Lord. And we don't know what your ultimate will is uh, in, in his circumstance here, but we, we know that we love him and would love to see him restored to health, if that be your will. Um, be with Robbie and the family to bring them comfort during this difficult time. And, and may your will be done in this circumstance. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson uh, number nine in our quarterly evangelism and witnessing. And the title this week is Releasing into Ministry. Somebody read the memory text for us, please, which is out of Romans ten fifteen. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And, and some of you may know that that is actually Paul pulling out of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, 7, which reads the following. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. So he's, he's pulling out of Isaiah to make this, uh, this statement in, in Romans. And the uh, first question is, what do you think about Paul not quoting Isaiah exactly? But basically, you know, he, he left some things out there. Have you noticed New Testament writers do this a lot when they quote the Old Testament? The idea is still the same. The, 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 the words don't have to be the same. I like that very much. I was thinking, do you think it's because he didn't actually have a um, Bible and CD-ROM to reference, and he was just using his memory, and his memory got it as close as he could as a possibility? And... Uh, and then what does that do with your concerns? Do you have any concerns about how the Holy Spirit and inspiration works when inspired writers um, misquote other inspired writers? Does that bother you at all? No, it doesn't bother me because what you said. Yeah, well, again, the thought is still the same, so the words don't have to be the same. Right, it's the thought. That's it's right. The thought that's inspired. That's exactly right. I just point that out because some people don't actually, haven't made that quite leap yet. They, they want to go with the, the specific words. How about if we did that? If we just if we just you know quote it the way we like it, we jumped all over. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that what paraphrases are? That's exactly what paraphrases are. Thank you. That's exactly what paraphrases are, and I think that's the point that God wants us to read the word and come to understand the meaning. What does this mean? What's the central message of the words that are being said? And is that the best way we would say that in our culture, in our language, in our setting, in our era, or would we say that differently? today and and how we say that same idea today I, I think that's exactly that's exactly right but it says there's a message of good news how do you wh- what would you say the message of good news or the message of salvation is and we're talking about in the context of releasing into ministry so think about it in this setting 
how would you say this to somebody? As you're being released to go out and share this good news, what are you sharing? What are you saying? What's the message? The love of God. The truth about God. Other thoughts? I mean, you can be healed and saved. You can be healed and saved, yes. Who God is. Who God is. I like all of these. In the, uh, in the context of Isaiah, as you know, his first application in Isaiah 52 was the idea of salvation and deliverance from Babylonian captivity. But Isaiah 52 precedes Isaiah 53. And everybody knows what's in Isaiah 53, right? Isaiah 53 is the messianic prophecy of the Messiah coming to deliver from sin. So while there may be a local application in Isaiah's day and time prophesying about salvation and deliverance from Babylon, I think there's a greater application that he was actually prophesying about the Messiah to deliver us from sin. Yeah. The text that he's quoting from says that God is the king. And that is good news if God is a good God. God is the king, and that's good news if... God is a good God. I've been reading a book this week called Rediscovering the Scandal of the Cross by Joel Green and Mark Baker, published by InterVarsity Press. If you haven't read it, it's very good reading if you want to get some insights into various um, theological constructs of the atonement. And uh, this is what they say on page 30. And uh, they say, we must face the reality that even when it is articulated by its most careful and sophisticated adherents, penal substitution atonement remains susceptible to misunderstanding and even bizarre caricature. According to the drama of the death of, Je- uh, the, of, the death of Jesus, becomes a manifestation of God's anger, with God as the distant father who punishes his own son in order to appease his own indignation. One of us has received report from a friend leading a Sunday school class in which the boy observed, Jesus I like, but the father seems pretty mean. Why is God always so angry, another friend asked. A policeman with a billy club writing up a ticket for yet another of my transgressions. An official at a basketball game always blowing his whistle. Foul, foul, technical foul. You're out of here. These are the images of God I knew, our friend observed. Did you you all ever get images like that? Well, they went on to observe. If at least to a significant degree, penal substitutionary atonement has been a culture product of life in the West... Is it any surprise that proclamation of the gospel grounded in this theory has tended to fall on deaf ears in other social settings or worlds? Christian missionaries from the West, armed with this central affirmation of the gospel, namely the good news that Jesus has come to take away your guilt, that Jesus has been punished for you so that God can declare you not guilty, have often reported to their surprise upon discovering the huge populations of the world for whom guilt is a non-issue. In other words taking this message, this particular gospel to the world isn't, isn't having impact, isn't having traction in certain settings of the world. And I think you've heard me say in here before that I've contended for some time that the Lord hasn't come because the gospel of the kingdom hasn't gone to the world. And these authors are saying if this representation of the gospel doesn't resonate with people in certain cultures because they don't struggle with, with these types of issues. And I, I was going to ask, do we have a message that would resonate with people in different parts of the world? Or are we being locked into a view that only resonates with North Americans? And if we do, what is the message? What would you, what would you say to people uh, in the Eastern, you know, where at least a third of the world evidently are uh, in the Eastern philosophy? Yes. 
Our, I think, you know, if you go to Frontier Missions, our whole idea of missions has changed because we, they feel like you need to go into the culture and find out how to win that culture before you can really impact them. I think that's a good, a good idea, don't you think? I want to explore that with you guys today, especially how we present our message, what we are saying to people. Um, if you think about the East, uh, you guys know, and I'm thinking about a message that resonates worldwide. Is there anything that we currently teach that has resonance worldwide? Yes. Going back to that comment, uh, we can have the best, met- best methods in the world, but if what we're saying isn't really the gospel, then the gospel still isn't going out. Ah, so going, so going into the culture, identifying the cultural needs, issues, concerns, crafting the message to be able to speak in a language they understand, but still presenting a distorted message isn't really helpful. I think that's a, a critical thing. I agree with that completely. So uh, do we have a message that resonates? Is any part of what we teach uh, applicable worldwide? And if so, what part? I think the, the connection to health is a part that everyone can connect with because people get sick all over the world and understand the, the model of a disease model. Um, I think that could be very helpful for them to understand God and his healing ways. D- did y'all hear that? And I like where you're going with that very much, that everybody on this planet struggles with health issues at some point in their life. And then the healing model, what type of law system are we dealing with once you move into the healing model? You're dealing with health laws, right? What kind of laws are those? Those are natural laws. And so moving a person's mind in that direction, can we present the issues of sin under an umbrella of natural law? Are there two antagonistic principles that we talk about that contend for supremacy in our lives? You know, God's principles of love versus that principle of self-centeredness. Do they combat each other? Can we see that in nature? Plants produce fruits, nuts, grains, vegetables, yet they also produce thorns, thistles, poisons, toxins. Do we see within the plant kingdom that there's two principles at work? Animals are loving, loyal, um, you've seen the stories of of um, dogs trained to work with uh, law enforcement or military and how they will sacrifice themselves to save their, their handlers and other humans, the loving loyalty of animals. But they are also ferocious and dangerous and kill humans too. Um, rain refreshes the land, yet storms destroy. Despots kill millions but love their families. I mean, we see this conflicting, and of course Christianity teaches internal, we have two conflicting natures, a spiritual nature and a carnal nature, going back and forth. You're familiar with the quote in education about the student look, looking to, learning to view the word as a whole, hearing all the parts, the grand central theme, the um, understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy, the two antagonistic motives were to education page 191. Can, if you were going to someone with the East, with the Eastern mindset, could you approach them through this, this avenue? Have you heard of the yin and the yang? Yes. One of the thing I was gonna, things I was going to say about uh, reaching out to the Mideast in particular is one of the things that stands out is the integrity that the Adventist Church has. I mean, Muslims, they're no dummies when it comes to the Bible. They do know it as well. And I know that one of the things that they have kind of pointed out is like, well, look at the Adventists. They don't contradict themselves. They don't drink. They don't eat pork. 
you know, and that's I think one of the things where one of the areas where we could reach the uh, Mid East. Yeah, in the in the Islamic world, I've heard this reported repeatedly that that uh, Muslims don't necessarily view Adventists as Christians, and. and and the three reasons cited over and over again is, is why Adventists aren't viewed as Christians is because Adventists don't drink alcohol, don't eat pork, and don't go to church on Sunday. Okay, and, and, and if you think that through, you know, that's a terrible statement. That's horrible. We're not Christians because of that? Or that what's, that's what makes somebody a Christian? A Christian is somebody who drinks alcohol, eats pork, and goes to church on Sunday. <laughs> the majority of Christianity, that's what they do. But is that Christian? Is that Christ-like? No, not at all. Yeah. So I think there is an opportunity there. That's a, What I would suggest, those types of things become uh, opening wedges. They become opportunities for dialogue. They, they can open the mind for discussion. Well, why is it you guys don't do this? Where is it you came with this? Why do you view it this way? And you begin then, hopefully, taking it to a much, much deeper level than they've considered, I think. And that's this, this character of God issue. Putting God back at the center. Yeah. Question? Yes. As you go around to different cultures... You can't have a cookie-cutter model. You really do have to see what the culture thinks. We were at Red Clay last weekend, and we read about the spring there, how the Indians thought that it meant, or the Cherokee thought that it meant there was another world under there because the water coming out of the spring was warmer in the winter than the air was and cooler in the summer than the air was, so there must be a world under there, a whole other world, alternate world to them. And so you come across cultures who think differently, who interpret what they see in a manner that, that strikes meaning to them. And part of what you do is, is try to allay the misunderstandings. You can see sickness and health and so on. You can misinterpret sickness and health. Sickness comes from an angry God. <laughs> He's cursing you. The lepers in, in Jesus' time, you know, they all felt they were cursed of God. Everyone felt they were cursed of God, but it was just a disease. But people misinterpreted the illness and health model. Yeah, and so if you look even in Scripture, the Scripture gives many metaphors. Many metaphors through the Scripture of the plan of salvation, ransom metaphor, seeking what this lost metaphor, um, the uh, the sacrifice of the lamb metaphor. Um, there's many metaphors of Scripture represented in in, uh, in the 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 the, uh, the groom groom and bride metaphor. Lots of metaphors in Scripture and in cultures. Lots of metaphors. I would like to suggest that behind all the metaphor, there's actually an eternal reality a truth, a cosmic truth upon which the universe runs and operates. And all the metaphors will find their true meaning in that truth. And, I, and that truth, as I view it currently, is God's character. It centers on God himself. That's the truth. And God's character is the origination, the eminence, uh, where, where um, the law of love originates. And these are protocols upon which he builds his universe to run. And when we have this kind of lens on our mind, we can go into cultures, we can hear what they're saying, take their metaphor, and show how it fits right in to the ultimate truth behind the metaphor. It seems to me. Yes? I think another thing that is cross-cultural is a need for healthy, loving, respectful relationships. And I think God and the way he relates to us is the perfect example of a healthy, loving, respectful relationship. 
I, I like that very much. Yes, the principle of love coming out in the way we actually deal with people. I want to I want to hit a little bit on the the yin and the yang for a second, and then I want to go on first back to the to the relationship aspect and how in the East they view this a little different than we do in the West, and and sin is seen a little differently. Um, you guys have heard of yin and yang, right? Well, in that culture, it, in, in the West, we often think of it as good and bad, uh, good and evil, moralistically. In that culture, though, it's not actually taught that way, from my understanding. It's taught as there is no moral tone. There is no right or wrong or good or bad or evil. It's just different manifestations. They can't have light without darkness or darkness without light. The front of the hand and the back of the hand. The, pardon? Fire and water, hot and cold. Male and females, another great example of the yin and the yang, right? And, um, and that as uh, one pinnacles the, into the yang wheat, growing up in its full, um, full harvest, uh, is in its yang form, which will then give back to the seed form, the yin, which falls into the ground, and, and then, and so it's this perpetual cycle of yin and yang. Um, this is what they talk about. Um, if you understand that philosophy, are there any strengths you can approach somebody with that philosophy through? And, and, and then, and then, do you see the weaknesses in it, the errors in it? What are the strengths? The B, I think, what they're trying to represent is balance. But and what we're talking about is uncircle, unselfish circle. You can think of as the balance of life. And a lot of cultures, including that one, you have to have that one and that one to balance to to be a balanced thing. And I, I think, in our religion or Christianity, you can talk about how God balances your life. He See, keeps you from imbalance. So the, the, the yin and the yang, male and female, makes a whole in the yin and the yang. If male without female, you don't have a whole, or vice versa. Uh, in Christianity, what does the Bible teach about the whole human being? Faith and works. The two shall become one. The two shall become one. You don't have the, the male and female. He made them in his image, male and female, and they became, you know, it's a human being. A man or mankind is, is the two together. So there's some truth in that. Yes, your comment. There's the whole faith and works thing. You can't have one without the other. You need both for salvation. Um, there has to be a balance of those two, a working together. Yeah, and I think I think there's some truth in that as well. I'm not going to go into the faith and works dialogue at the moment, but yes, that balance needs to be there. If you have faith without application, if you try to work without confidence and trusting God, you're going to be imbalanced either way. Yeah, yes. There are gods in almost every pagan religion. You have good gods and bad gods. So <clears throat> there's, I don't know if they're trying to balance that out e- either. You know, I mean, it's, it, that doesn't make sense to me. But Yes, over here. Eve. I think one of the errors is that life can't exist without death. Ah. You know, God is love, and that's the ever-moving ever circle of love. Death doesn't enter the picture. But in the yin and the yang, one can't exist without the other. Okay, beautifully said. And so first, the strength of the yin and the yang philosophy that you can pick up on and, and validate are the circle of love seen in nature. The unity of man and woman together making a whole person as God designed it. The uh, the, the, the um, cycle of life in the in the plant world that God designed for seed to bring forth fruit and continue to give of itself to bring forth food and so forth. You can validate this circle of giving, the, the law of love in action, but... What, what I see as a big flaw is there's a huge state of denial. And that is, there is actually evil in the world. And to suggest there's not it is a state of denial and distortion. Um, 
and evil would be something that would break the circle of love. So in the metaphor of the wheat, you could say, as the wheat starts to fall to the ground, if something were to prevent that from ever planting and ever growing again, then that would be evil, to break that circle, that flow, you see. And so you could, and that's of course what we understand sin to be, is the break of God's circle of love. Selfishness. And so I, I would think there would be openings there to suggest and have a dialogue along that. What about, um, and you said mentioning about the death, again, this idea that when we die, we get recycled and reincarnate and die and get recycled and reincarnate over and over again. The energy that is ours um, gets reused, and so we come back in a different life form. This is often taught. I've ta- I've, I talked with a, a Hindu who, uh, who was believing this, and, and he used the metaphor of the energy. And the energy that is ours when we die goes back out into the cosmos, the ethers, and then comes back in with an, in every new life, and so our energy gets recycled. Yes? We have the same problem in Christianity when people say, as my neighbor whose daughter was killed in a car accident, they said, well, this is the will of God, this is, this is a, a good thing in some way that you don't understand. Um, that's not Christianity to say that bad things that happen to us are actually good. Correct. They're still bad. God has the ability to bring beauty out of action. Correct. He doesn't bring evil to us. That's a yin and yang philosophy. Correct. Yes, it is. And it's an Eastern infection of, of our... It's, in, it's in, in churches. That's right. Yes. Well, it seems like this whole thing is, is we're looking at this world and saying, what is ideal and what, how, is, how is the universe constructed based on this world? That's right. This fallen, broken, disintegrated, infected, world. infected world. Yes. That's like going to the hospital and picking out a patient and making your construct of what a person is like based on that diseased patient. Exactly. Exactly. Well said. Well said. And so this is where these things fall short. And that's why looking to Scripture, looking to what God describes in Scripture of His of His character, His law of love, gives us a lens to then be able to differentiate what's in harmony with His design and where does the deviations occur. Um, so back to that question about the energy being recycled, though, you know, it says in um, Ecclesiastes 12.7, our bodies return to the dust of the earth and the breath will go back to God who gave it. What's going back to God? Energy. Yeah. Numa. Numa in the Greek, ruach in the, in the Hebrew. It's the breath, the energy. Same that's in the animals. It's that life energy that comes from God. Um, some would say our individuality goes back to God. So it's not just our breath and life energy that goes back, but, but our individuality is stored safe in heaven with God for resurrection. I like that too. But then the individuality doesn't get back in somebody else's life. It comes back at resurrection. And there will be a resurrection, so there's some element of truth in that aspect. It's not a recurring thing, but there is a coming back. The metaphor I like to use about how to show some maybe disconnect here, because there's pieces of truth mixed with error in this theory. Because it is true that we are coming back. Those who die are coming back. Right? That, that, that goes to the Lord, and the Lord's going to reinvigorate life, and it's coming back. But the metaphor I like to use is water molecules. You know, when, when, when you're born, you, you're 70% of your body is water. What happens to that water when you die? Where's it go? And so is it likely that most of us have water in our bodies that was in somebody else's body at some point? Is that not right? It's recycled over and over again, right? 
does that mean when that water gets recycled that we're that other person? No, I, I would look at that as re- regarding the energy aspect of it. Same thing. Energy may get used over again, but it's not individualistic. It's not an identity that's coming with it. Until God re- resurrects us with our own identity, that energy may or may not come back. Um, and I think evolutionists use that for one, for, to defend one position. But to me, that is just a glaring indication that there is a truth because all of these things are, are variants off of a true concept. You know what I mean? They're just little distortions off of a true concept. And to me, that says there is something major to be searching for. That's right. It's well said because the devil can't create anything. He can only pervert what God has created. So all these little theories of distor- are distortions in some way of the truth. That's exactly right. In this book, this book um, that I mentioned earlier, Scandal of the Cross, Rediscovering the Scandal of the Cross, they actually talk about the Eastern cultures in a different way, and that those cultures are often a shame-based culture rather than a guilt-based culture of the West. And the theolo- theological difference, I want to go through some of the difference they outline in the book. When, when you make an error, when you sin in a shame-based culture, the focus is on self. What did I do wrong? I am, I am ashamed of myself. When you make a mistake, sin in a guilt-based culture, the focus is on the act. How was that act wrong? What should I have done differently that that act would not have been wrong? How can I change my action? Not how can I change me, how can I change my action? Um, the nature of the fault in the, in the shame-based culture is failure to meet one's own self-expectations. In other words, the standards you hold to, to live by. Whereas the nature of the fault in the guilt-based culture is an offense against the legal expectations. I broke the rules. I broke God's commandments. I broke the law. The internal reaction of, in the shame-based culture is one of embarrassment, and disgrace, versus condemnation and remorse in the guilt-based culture. One of self-depreciation versus one of self-accusation. One of fear of abandonment in a shame-based culture. I'm going to be abandoned. I won't be loved. People won't want to hang out with me because, because I'm, I'm shameful. Versus one of fear of punishment. I'm going to be punished now. One of resentment versus anger. Self-isolation, I'm too ashamed, I'm going to hide, I don't want to show my face in public. Self-isolation versus self-justification. I had every right to do that. It wasn't my fault, it was the woman. If she didn't bring me the fruit, wouldn't have done this. And then alienation versus hostility. Feeling alienated versus, versus hostile. And then social reaction, how does society react in the two cultures? Well, in the shame-based culture, society reacts with ridicule and exclusion. And in the Guilt-based culture with blame and holding responsible. In the, so, in the shame-based culture, it's disgrace and hold in contempt. In the guilt-based culture, it's accusation and condemnation. And in the shame-based, it's disapprove and reproach versus punish and retaliate. The justice in the guilt-based culture is what? How's justice going to be served in the guilt-based culture? By punishment. And then the remedy, this is what's very gets interesting. Remedy in the shame-based culture is identification with the, the, the person and communication with them. 
And in the guilt-based culture, the remedy is, and there's one more remedy coming, is propitiation through restitution or payment of penalty. And then the other remedy is love banishes shame. That, that identification with, communicating with, restoring in relationship with love takes away the shame and restores the person. Whereas in the guilt-based culture, it's justification banishes, banishes guilt. And so there is an example in the book, and I'm going to read this example to you. And see, uh, and this was a Christian missionary trying to promote the idea of penal substitution in Japan and having Japanese people say to him, this doesn't really make sense to me. And then he observed this in uh, a member of his church and it opened his mind up to what I just read to you. A tragic accident provided the first clues as to why the common penal substitution explanation of atonement, so clear and logical to Western missionaries, had, no, had not satisfied the, the Japanese church leader. A young man from the local congregation was driving a company truck and accidentally hit and killed two women walking by the side of the road. The police in the court demonstrated more concern for the relationships and people's responses than to written codes. They handled the case in a way markedly different from American legal process. The young man immediately confessed that the accident was his fault because he had been uh, going too fast. The judge put him in custody but released him to attend the funerals of the two women who had been killed. The judge attended the funerals also and carefully observed not only how the young man behaved, but how the families responded to him. In the meantime, the police carefully investigated and exonerated the young man. They said he could not have been going as fast as he had reported, and they discovered that the company truck had a steering defect. The young man was let out of jail to do a work of public service for the rest of the year, and then he was fully released and rehabilitated. The case demonstrated that the Japanese had a different difference, a different concept of how justice is achieved. What do you think about that? Yeah. She says it's better. Pardon? I want to move to Japan. You want to move to Japan. So, so with this in mind, with this in mind, with this philosophical view, with realizing that that culture is not a guilt-based culture, it's a shame-based culture, and you see this, why, why maybe you can get some insight into now the historic um, reasons for Seppuku or Harry Carey, this self-suicide. Because when you're ashamed, the ultimate way to remove yourself from society and take away the shame is by suicide. And oftentimes in families, when something very shameful has happened, some member of the family will suicide, and that's seen as a way of restoration by removing the shame. The shame is being removed. Um, you mentioned that if a person commits suicide by jumping in front of a, a train or you know causes some dis- disruption like that, they will actually charge the family for the cost of repairs or all sorts of things like that. They they do hold people responsible for irresponsible or for acts like that. So so do we have a message? There's, did you have a question back there? I just Chris from Japan is verifying that you're being correct in that. Japan is a shame-based culture. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm glad you're watching. <laughs> so do we have a message for people uh, that we could present to people who come from that orientation? How about Jesus, instead of Jesus died to pay our legal penalty, take away our guilt, um, we instead, um, that when Adam and Eve sinned, they shamed themselves and humanity. And Jesus came to remove the shame, heal mankind, and restore honor to humanity. 
Well, this is a quotation that you might find interesting. It's out of Signs of the Times, August 26, 1897, written by one of the founders of the church, of our church. It said, Christ came to give expression to the law of God to re- represent the Father's character. He came to minister to man to restore in him the moral image of God. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might be made rich. Rich in what way? In character. God did not create man sinful. Adam came forth from the hand of his maker without a taint of evil. The holy pair might have retained their innocence had they lived by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, had they refused to listen to the strange voice declaring another story than, I like that, declaring another story than that which God had told them. But they abused their high and holy privileges. They were left free to choose between good and evil, and they chose evil. And as they chose to believe the lie of Satan and disobey the express command of God, that which was pure and godlike in their nature became perverted and defiled. You see what happened? Their choices, they made bad choices. Their bad choices changed them. They became perverted and defiled. They were shamed. In his humanity, Christ lived a perfect life, thus elevating humanity on the scale of moral worth with God. So we find a reversal happening in Christ. He takes the shame, and there's lots of those texts, lots of those references where Christ took the shame in order to, to, trans, uh, to, to fix and heal what, what brought the shame. Take it away. Remove it. I see some really confused looks on your face. Is that, is that a different concept to think of? Are we so habituated into the guilt orientation of things that it's hard to resonate with a shame-based way of thinking? Do we see any truth in how Christ came to take this defective and shameful condition and heal it and remove it? No? Yes? Maybe? Think about it. It's just a challenge to think about. I certainly would not say these are exclusive, that there's crossover. People who experience shame also experience guilt. People who experience guilt also experience shame. I wouldn't, wouldn't want to say that, but if, if I look at the history of the Dark Ages, that society was very much a guilt-based society because the system... Uh, the system the guilt was external rather than... But the purpose, the purpose of the system, the way the system promoted, was not this type of restoration that we just read about. The system promoted a system of payment to make money for the church and the organization. The restoration took place in your payment of penance. Exactly, which is a guilt-based process. Punishment, and this is why they would burn people at the stake. Punishment. This is why they would... Most of all the punishments were shame-based punishments. Probably 99% of the punishments in the religious were shame-based. For what purpose? to uh, ensure social conformity. Okay, so it wasn't about healing and restoration, which is what happens in a shame-based culture. It was a, so this was really a punitive culture. If you don't do it my way, you will be punished until you do. It was a control-down, top-down, conform, punish. And the punishment was, was shame Yeah, they might have used shame to punish, but it wasn't a shame-based culture. In other words... We're dealing with different definitions. Right, and that's, that's, why, that's why I contrasted the two, if you look down the, the two. So like I said, when a guilt-based culture, you can experience shame, but the culture is not designed to take away your shame in a guilt-based culture. The culture is designed to punish you, to, exec- to get justice, and someone has to make payment so that justice is served. But you as a person may experience some shame. Directly, um, the punishments aren't intended to cause shame. Well, certainly the Roman culture, when the crucifixion was clearly a shame-based um, punishment. It was designed to put people up naked. It wasn't designed to cause the most physical torture necessarily. It was designed to keep them up there on the cross for days where they were publicly humiliated and shamed, hanging there naked in front of the entire community. 
I think one thing to be careful of, though, even in looking at it as as the shame, um, and, and God came to remove the shame, is that, and I think you've pointed this out before, we should not feel guilty or ashamed that we were born on this planet into an unhealthy condition. Um, it is the disease that is the problem, not... Because um, shame says, says I am am a horrible person. But God says, I can heal you. Yeah, I love that very much. And thank you, Eve, for sharing that. That's exactly right. And that's another message I think we have to take to people in that culture, um, that we are, not, we are not responsible for the fact we're born in this condition. We didn't choose it any more than a child born HIV-infected chose, chose to be born HIV-infected. And many people might be ashamed if they're, if they're, if they're HIV positive in, the, in, our, in our culture. I think they would be ashamed of that and not want to tell people and hide it. Many of us are ashamed of the sin in our lives. Um, but the real question is not do you have this condition, because you didn't have a choice not to have it, as Eve is pointing out. The real question is are you taking the remedy? God has provided remedy through Christ, and are you partaking the remedy? That's the real question. And if you refuse the remedy, well, I guess you could be ashamed of that. <laughs> I wouldn't take the remedy. I chose to stay sick. Uh, yes. I, I like the medical model, I think, better than any of them. Because to me, being guilty or being ashamed, that that is a, a condition where there's a lot of self-depreciation. Um, but in the medical model, you're sick. And yes. You want to be well. You know, and, and there is there is a way for you to be well. So it, you know, we're we're in this sick condition. We can't help it. We just are. We're, we come that way. <laughs> that's right. No, that's exactly right. And I think we do have something to offer. Sunday's lesson talks about in the first paragraph. It says many a dedicated church leader has cut short or at best diminished his or her effectiveness by an unwillingness to share the ministry load with others. I'm willing to share, guys. Okay, so I, I, we, we need lots of volunteers. We have lots of things going on. So please, if you're interested in helping, let us know because we have lots of things to do. And in fact, I, I told you last week about the, uh, about the 20,000 of these we've ordered. I brought boxes of them this week. I'm, I've started putting these out in my lobby at my office and patients are loving these things. So if you have a place you wouldn't like to set them out, I've got several boxes with me this week. Please take a box with you and uh, put them places where people can share them. This is just a nice little pamphlet uh, talking about the, the fundamental beliefs that, uh, that share the, the character of uh, God's character of love. Uh, and it's, a, it's written in a generic voice for all Christians of any denomination. So it's, it's very nice to share. So hopefully you'll grab some of those. I've got two boxes sitting out here. I've got another box in my car. So... Please take some when you leave today. Um, Monday, on the first paragraph, the lesson suggests that there is fear behind the professional only only mindset of evangelism and that the non-professional might uh, do something wrong in evangelism and thus we don't let non-professionals into the evangelistic uh, setting because they might turn somebody away from Christ. What do you think about that? That only the professionally trained public speaker, theologian, evangelist should do evangelism because the non-professional might mess up and say something wrong. As if the professionals never do. We learn by our mistakes, yeah. And where's that aspect of a sincere heart? I can tell you I deal with a lot of people in human relationships that uh, I don't know how to talk, I don't know how to say to my spouse the, the things, I don't, I, I'm not a good speaker, I wish I could talk like you, they will say. And I said, the real critical thing is simply being honest, just from the heart. Just tell what's on you. You may hem and haw, you may stumble over your words, but if you're genuine, 
they will get your message and it will resonate with them. It's when you're, you know, calculating and you're trying to be duplicitous and you're trying to cover 17 bases at once and not offend anybody and you're really trying to couch and cloud what you're saying in terms that you think they want you to hear, uh, what, that you think they want to hear. That's when it doesn't sound genuine. It doesn't resonate. So just learning how to be open and honest. I think a genuine speaker telling their heart reaches people. Yeah? So I need some volunteers that can help teach when I'm out of town. And Russell's out of town. <laughs> yes. That also assumes that we are taking the role of, of God and taking on the responsibility for ourselves, saying that it's the Holy Spirit's responsibility. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to convict, to bring the message home. It's our job to witness of what we know. Yes, exactly right. So the, then the lesson, though, goes on to say, well, help us in our endeavor to decide who really is qualified to get up and do an evangelistic series and who's not. Um, the, the lesson points us to Matthew seven seventeen and 18. Uh, Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And then it goes on to tell us, um, how do we determine between good and bad fruit, and how should the church leadership as a whole be involved in this process and... How do we do this without judging others? Any of y'all ever go to the supermarket and pick out fruit? You, you weigh the good fruit and the bad fruit? Do you ever do that? Come on, be honest. Well, that one's rotten, man. It's got mold on it. Are you making judgments? I want you to do that without making judgments. Without using your judgment. Don't use your judgment. I, I just was a little confused by that. But then I got to thinking that maybe they're saying we're not to judge Good and bad fruit. Maybe they're saying mature and immature fruit. That's what we're to judge. Not not good or bad, but mature, immature. That fruit is green. It's not ready yet. That person's too childlike yet. They need to grow up a little bit more. Maybe maybe that's what they're saying. But then I got to thinking. Um, maybe it's like a remedy a doctor puts forth. Could a doctor have a good heart to help people and offer a remedy purported to heal? But it actually is not effective. Could that happen? It actually doesn't work, even though their intention was to help. Um, could there be evangelists, people speaking with good intentions, really wanting to help, put forth a message that doesn't help? Could there be a doctor who's out to make money? <laughs> not primarily interested in helping, but primarily interested in getting ahead, but uses the vehicle of the healthcare system and, and creates a remedy that actually works. And makes millions. Could his motive, so could somebody actually be speaking because of some other selfish reason and actually be presenting a message that's true? So what are we not to be judging? The person themselves. Ah, we're not to be judging the person themselves. Are we to judge the message? Are we to make judgments about the effectiveness and quality of the remedy that's being offered? Yes. Yes. So we're not to judge the motives of the heart, but we are to be judging what's being taught. Would you all say that's a reasonable balance? Yeah. As far as the ministry, who should be doing it itself, I I was a pen pal with somebody who didn't believe people should be doctors and nurses. You shouldn't go. If God heals you, great. If you if he doesn't, that's his will. And being a nurse, of course, I had to you know, say that how I look at it is differently than how she looked at it. I mean, God could heal. He could teach. He could convert. He could do everything himself. So why does he need us to do anything and that's for us, to be part of the healing, part of the instruction. Therefore, I think every one of us needs to be a ministry 
to someone else because it's good for us to be a river of part of the river of life, not the pool of life. So in the process of helping others, it's actually transforming and healing to us. And that's part of the remedy for us. It's like our, when you, you know, physical therapy, you've got to do the exercises. You, you just understand the exercises. You just lecture about the exercises, but you never do the exercises. You don't get stronger. If you understand the remedy, you understand God's ways, methods, and principles, and never practice God's ways, methods, and principles, you don't change. You don't develop. You don't grow. So I think you're exactly right. Um, there's a great uh, statement in the lesson on Monday. It says, if we give adequate attention to the, to, leading, to the leading of people into a meaningful and deepening relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit will ensure that they bear the right fruit. I think that's well said, that we need to bring people to that personal relationship with Jesus. That should be a focus of evangelism. Um, Tuesday's lesson also makes another great point, and that is that uh, people from different backgrounds and cultures and generations and races will respond differently to how to, to different messages, different different uh, way we talk, different way we present things, and so that every one of us is needed in this ministry. Because there are some of you um, that people will listen to you that will never listen to me. Because of your background, because of your perspective, because of where you're coming from, because of your um, your culture, but whatever, they will listen to you. They will never listen to me. And vice versa. The people that listen to me, they won't listen to you. And so that's why we can't leave evangelism just to professionally trained evangelists or speakers or teachers that all of us have to be sharing to those who will listen to us. And some of you are the absolute best evangelists to reach certain people in this world. There's no one better qualified than you. Have you all realized that? Yeah. I think we forget that, don't we? We go through kind of sometimes oblivious. Hey, I'm the best evangelist to read somebody. Who is that? Yeah, ask the Lord to show you. I bet he will if you ask him. Lord, who do you want me to reach? Who, the, who is the one I can, I can tell? Don't ask if you're not ready. He'll show you. Won't he? Yeah. Wednesday's lesson. It's about spiritual growth and, uh, and things that help us grow spiritually, things that help us develop internally to grow in, in spiritual maturity. And I, I made a list of some things, um, and, and maybe you guys can add to it. First thing would be quiet time with God. How many of us in our culture today take quiet time? Radio off, TV off, iPad off, iPhone off, no texting, tweeting, and all those other things people do, tooting or whatever. You know, whatever's going on, uh, just shut it all off and let your mind be quiet and still. How often do we do that today? Do we do it? I mean, look at your schedule. Do you do that 15 minutes every day? Quiet time, 15 minutes every day. Do you do an hour every day? Do you 15 minutes a week? The mind needs to be quieted. Be still and know that I am God. I think this is a huge... Um, distraction the devil has thrown on us with all our cool technology that we just are keep keeping our minds going, 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 and we don't give quiet time. I teach my patients. Many of my patients have anxiety disorders because they don't know how to quiet their mind. They just have thought after thought after thought after thought after thought, and they can't even track one down before the next one's in, and boom, 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 because they don't know how to quiet their mind. They don't take quiet time. It's movies, TVs, video games, um, all this stuff constantly. So quiet time. Um, meditation on God's creation. A lot of lessons in nature. A lot of lessons. Take a walk in nature. How often do we get time to do that anymore? I know my wife's saying, yeah, let's do a walk in nature, Tim. Because <laughs> she's going, let's go for a walk. And when I'm busy. I'm at my computer. I'm writing. She, she would like me to do more of that. 
Uh, of course, study God's Word. Sharing with other people, as mentioned earlier. Studying with others. Helping others. Getting active in altruistic activities. That Putting into practice those God's principles. What other things do you guys find helpful in spiritual development? Anything that you found? Teaching. Teaching. Oh, teaching others. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I can tell you I learn more when I teach than when I am a student. Because when you teach, you have to think differently. How, not only do I understand this concept, how can I now explain this concept? And when you start to try to put it in words to explain it, wow, now you have to think differently. I think it's very helpful. Don't you think that the biggest, maybe one of the biggest places that we miss is a lot of times we will listen, we'll, we'll come and try to learn, um, but we don't go out and actually start putting that into practice. So Absolutely. the actual giving, you know, the actual living it out is, is something that would help us grow so much more. Did you hear what she said? The actual sharing, giving, living it out. You know, what did Christ say? The more you give, the more you will receive. This is that law of the way God designed things. If you want more love, love more. If you want more understanding, share what you know with someone else. I mean, the more you give away, the more you receive to you. Yes. I think it's also important, and, and they, they said it in Wednesday's lesson down here farther, Jesus is saying that those who are living up to receive Bible truth will receive greater light. And I think, uh, like we were talking this morning, it's not just the fundamental theology, but everything we come to understand about life and health is all tied in to the one reality that there is. If we come to understand something and we just brush right past it and say, you know what, I want to incorporate that in my life, it's too much trouble, or I just don't want to deal with it, or whatever. I think that shuts down a part of our brain. When God brings something to us, we recognize it as a truth. I think if we pass by it, we limit our ability to move on. I love that. Uh, those who are saved are those who develop that hard attitude of loving truth. Russell. You know, giving, giving back to your, your teaching and, and student model and, and the healthcare model, don't you find that you learn a little something from every patient you encounter? Yes. I mean, I do. Yes. I mean, every patient that I'm trying to teach something, uh, I learn something myself. And, you know, when I substitute for you, I learn a lot more than when I'm sitting here in the audience. Yes. No, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and, and we're about to w- wind up. I just want to say, so as we're, we're studying, studying God's word, seeking to develop, um, how can we learn the question? And the question of the lesson is, how can we learn to tell truth from error? How can we learn to tell truth from error? What tools would be helpful? I have a whole list of things here in the lesson we're not going to get into today. I just want to say, first thing, identify your source, your source of information. Are you get, gathering your source? Is your source of data opinions of others? Including Bible commentaries. Understand, Bible commentaries are opinions of others. Get your mind around that idea. That's what they are. Now, they're very thoughtful, educated opinions, but they're still opinions. Not getting, word, getting a Bible commentary is not like getting a word from God. Getting an educated word, but it's still, it's still an opinion. Um, so I think there are three sources of information that need to be integrated in a harmonious way, and that is Scripture, inspired, inspired writings from God's penman, God's laws in nature and science, and experience. Experience being your experience with God, revelations from God, if God reveals things to you, experience with other people, ex- observations of the world. Your experiences harmonize with Scripture, and the laws of God is revealed in nature. All three harmoniously blended will be a very, very a healthy way to keep you in the middle of the road of truth. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much 
that you are a God of love and a God of truth, a God who uh, patiently works with us, wanting to lead us step by step to a knowledge of you and to a free, loving relationship with you. We lift our hearts up to you, ask that you will continue to transform and heal and restore us back to your ideal, and let us become more effective witnesses for you. Give us opportunities to share in our community. This week, between this week and next week, give us an opportunity to tell somebody about you this week. We pray in your holy name. Amen.